We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Greatness in the Shadows, Larry Doby and the Integration of the American League, the publisher, University of Nebraska Press, the author, Douglas Branson. Please join me as we welcome Douglas Branson to the clubhouse. Can I stand? If you like to stand, that's okay. up to you. I'm a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and I like to stand. My students call me Dancing Doug. So, um, I, I was a former law student. I'll stand if he's going to stand. <laughs> I thought I'd talk a little bit about the etymology of the book, and then I'd give you some biographical details about Larry Doby, and then we'll get into his major league career. Um, I grew up on a farm in North Central Ohio, and in those days, the Cleveland Indians challenged the Yankees every year. I think the Yankees went to the World Series 10 out of 13 years. Uh, one year, 59, the White Sox won, went, won the American League pennant. And two years, led by Larry Doby, uh, the Indians went. Those were exciting times. You know, the, each team played uh, the, its opponents 20-some times, and, and the Yankees would come to Cleveland, and they had a cavernous stadium, and there'd be 86, 88,000 people watching a doubleheader, and everybody throughout the Midwest would be on the radio listening to these things. They were really exciting times. I saw my first major league game in 1955, and Larry Doby was the center fielder. So, fast forwarding 50 years, I was uh, with my wife. We went to see the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson and his monumental breakthrough, breaking the, the color barrier. And we like to stay at the end of a movie and watch the ending credits. And way at the end of the ending credits, in very small type, it said, and Larry Doby integrated the American League 11 weeks later. <laughs> So I went home and I got on Amazon and I looked, there are 55 plus biographies of Jackie Robinson. There are over a hundred books written about Ricky and Robinson. One book, a paperback by Professor Joe Moore at Montclair State about Larry Doby. It's about an 80, 90 page book. So I began thinking, uh, actually I wrote, woke up in the middle of the night and I said, why is this? And I wrote the title of this book on a piece of paper on the bedside table. Um, I didn't want to write a, a, what is called a box score biography. A lot of the modern baseball books, you know, they just go chapter by chapter, season by season, and you can get all of the box scores on the internet now. So they go through this game and that game and this series and the pennant standings, and then they go on to the next season. I wanted to write a book to explain to explore some of the reasons why Doby has remained so obscure. I mean, I talk to people in their 40s, they never heard of him. I talk to people even in their 50s. I was talking to somebody from Northern Ohio, never heard of him. Maybe 60s people have heard of him. Um, so Larry Doby was from South Carolina, Camden, South Carolina, a little town of about six or uh, 8,000 people. But it was six or eight thousand people in the time of the Revolutionary War. One of the great battles of the Revolutionary War in 1780 was fought in Camden. Cornwallis uh, uh, destroyed the Union of uh, the Revolutionaries' Southern Supply Depot, which was in Camden. Doby uh, was born in 1923. His, he was an only child. His parents separated soon after he was born. His father, David Doby, came north and worked as a groom at Saratoga, and he was drowned in a boating accident when, he, when Doby was eight years old. His mother, Etta, came north to work as a domestic in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, Patterson, New Jersey was a center of the Industrial Revolution. The Colt 45 revolver was made there, and locomotives were manufactured there because they needed the water power, and Patterson was at the 70-foot falls of the Passaic River. Um, so there was a lot of affluence around that area at that time, and Etta worked in, as a domestic, 
So Dobie was raised by his grandmother and then by his aunt and uncle. When he was in middle school, his mother brought him north, but he didn't live with his mother. He lived with friends of hers, and he went from home to home. He attended East Hyde High School in Patterson, which was a large, pretty good high school of 1,200 students. It was integrated. There were about 30, 35 blacks. Dobie himself says he never experienced much racism when he went to high school. He was the second athlete in the history of the state of New Jersey to win four letters all three of his years of eligibility. He lettered in football, basketball, baseball, and track. Uh, he was a superb athlete. He won a, 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 a scholarship. Well, the one story of his racial, uh, racial discrimination, uh, they were invited after they won Patterson Eastside, won the New Jersey State Football Championship, and they were invited to go to Florida but the Floridians said, well, don't bring that black player. So Dobie's teammates at uh, Eastside High School voted, and they voted unanimously not to go. So Dobie uh, won a, foot, a basketball scholarship. He was quite a basketball player. He was 6'1", 180. Um, he went to Long Island University, which was a basketball power, and, and a celebrated coach was Claire B. And he won a, a, a basketball scholarship in, I guess it was 40, 40 or 41. After just a semester, he transferred to Virginia Union in Richmond, Virginia. I don't know why, but it was with the blessing of Claire B. And then the winds of war began blowing stronger. Pearl Harbor happened, and he enlisted in the Navy. Uh, he went to Great Lakes. He was. Uh, physical fitness instructor for Boots after he himself finished boot camp. And that's kind of interesting because he met Marion Motley and uh, what's his, uh, one, one of the linemen who, who were uh, drafted by the Browns. Well, I guess they didn't have a draft in those days. Signed by the Browns in 46. They were among the first African-American uh, professional football players. So he was then transferred to Mog in the Pacific. And uh, Mog was the, the, the repair facility for the 7th Fleet. So when Admiral Halsey's ships got beaten up in the, in the fighting the Japanese, they would go to Mog for repair work. And he became good friends with Mickey Vernon. Mickey Vernon was an all-star, uh, uh, played for the Washington Senators, first in war, first in peace, last in the American League. <laughs> and uh, Vernon tried to get Cal Griffin to sign Dobie, but uh, Griffin was a racist and wouldn't do it. Um, and they remained friends uh, for a long, long time. I mean, Vernon, after they got out of the Navy, Vernon sent Dobie uh, bats and, and gloves and things and uh, encouraged him. And actually, Vernon came and played for Cleveland for a year and then went back to the senators. Um, so Dobie came back from the war. And uh, you know, I think toward the end of World War II, there were 500 major league, former major league players in the service. I mean, Ted Williams, Bob Feller, they were all in, in the war. And Dobie started playing for the Newark Eagles of the of the Negro League, and um, <clears throat> in June of 1947, he was batting 509. He'd already hit for the cycle, I think, four times, and he had 12 home runs. The contrast with Jackie Robinson is interesting because, I mean, what Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey did were great, great things, but, but Jackie Robinson was bought along and a planned program over 18 months. Uh, he, he was put with the, uh, with the Montreal Royals uh, because that would be a very benevolent uh, crowd, it was thought. Uh, when he went to his spring training, Wendell Smith of the Pittsburgh Courier, leading African-American journalist, who actually is one of the unsung heroes of integration because he wrote Branch Rickey almost weekly telling him, you gotta, you got to get with it. You've got to have African-American players. So, but Wendell Smith was hired by Ricky 
to chauffeur Robinson to be his companion, to be his roommate. And then Ranch Ricky didn't want to have the team face integration, so he bought the old naval facility in Vero Beach, Florida. All of the other major league teams leased their spring training facilities. Ricky bought a facility. He had little bungalows built. So Jackie Robinson, beyond his uh, first season, never knew discrimination in spring training. He, he shared a little brick bungalow with another player. And uh, I think the Dodgers trained there until about three years ago when they moved to Arizona. Dobie, on the other hand, Bill Veck, wanted to shield Dobie and uh, other black players that he planned to, to draft from uh, the vicissitudes of discrimination. So he moved their spring training from Tampa, Florida to Tucson, Arizona, but it backfired. Because it turned out that the hotel, St. Rita in Tucson, would not allow blacks. So Dobie lived in separate quarters for 10 of the 13 spring trainings he went through. He lived with a family uh, of the man who did the laundry at the hotel. Um, so Robinson, Ricky bought Robinson along somewhat slowly. Vec parachuted Dobie in. He sent a scout to New, uh, to New Jersey. The, Ricky was looking at him too. Um, and Effa Manley and her husband owned the Newark um, Newark Eagles. She's the only woman in the Hall of Fame. And of course, she hated Branch Rickey because Branch Rickey <clears throat> would not pay for African-American players. He just said that their contracts aren't real contracts. They're with these Negro League teams. You know, they're basically month to month. I can interfere with them. Whereas Zach did pay, uh, the, the, the numbers vary. I've read 15,000 and 20,000 for Larry Doby. So Larry Doby was, uh, Lena Horn's husband was a Cleveland guy, uh, and he was the one that Vex sent to uh, Newark to bring Doby back. So Doby's teammates on the Newark Eagles uh, collected 50 bucks for him, and they got him a shaving kit, which Tass, uh, uh, they won't let you bring on airplanes anymore. But anyway, um, so he, he went to Chicago. The Indians were on the road. Uh, he went to the hotel where the Indians were staying. They said, we don't allow blacks here. So welcome to the major leagues. He had to find his own accommodations. You know, he was a 24-year-old kid. And he met Vec at the Congress Hotel. Uh, Vec gave him an hour of lecture or half an hour of lecture. Then they took a cab out to Kaminsky Park. Several of the Indians wouldn't shake hands with him. A few of them wouldn't even turn to face him. They just faced their lockers. Uh, but a lot of the, some of the other Indians were very supportive, especially Joe Gordon. Um, and so he put on his gray flannels. He went out. He was kind of bewildered by all this. Um, he stood there. He thought he was going to be discriminated against. And, and Joe Gordon said, what are you trying to do? Show off that major league uniform? Get over here and play catch. And so he, he was a member of the team, finally. Um, he was the first five-tool player. Uh, I've I, I read books where say Willie Mays was, Larry Doby was. He could hit for power. He led the American League in home runs twice. He could hit for average. Um, he's a blended fielder. He was a great base runner, not as good as Jackie Robinson, but people didn't steal bases in those days, and he had an <coughs> arm. Robinson, uh, I found that when I talk about this, I step on some toes. There's some people who just do not like any, any fooling with the Robinson legend, and I don't mean to fool with the Robinson legend. All I'm saying is is that a side stage, left, left, stage left or stage right, maybe Doby deserves a little bit of the limelight, which he doesn't get. But uh, I gave a talk to the Nine Conference uh, in Phoenix last week, and a couple of the older members just, uh, they dumped all over me, you know. <laughs> so, um, so he was, 
So, um, his rookie season, 1948, Doby hit 301, had 15 home runs, 14 in the season, one in the World Series. Uh, he batted in 85 runs. Um, Robinson uh, batted 293. Uh, he hit 10 home runs, and he had, I think, 60 RBIs. And in the second year, uh, their sophomore year, Doby's uh, credentials, uh, on-field statistics were better as well. Um, he went on to play um, seven, uh, let's see, eight, eight seasons with the Yankees. Uh, Al Lopez was the manager. Al Lopez, according to Doby, and according to Minnie Minoso, was a racist. He traded Minoso three times. Uh, he traded Doby three times. Um, but Doby was the offensive, um, offensive muscle of the Indians in those years. And they were great teams. They were seven All-Stars. The 1927 Yankees have uh, seven Hall of Famers. The 1927 Yankees, Murderers Row, six Hall of Famers. When Al Rosen and Early Wynn joined the Yankees, uh, the Indians in 49, they really became a powerhouse. They had the best pitching rotation in Major League Baseball. They had uh, Bob Lemon, Bob Feller, uh, Mike Garcia, and Early Wynn. And their statistics are amazing. Uh, they had Doby in the field. Uh, they had Al Rosen at third base. Some of the other incidents of racial discrimination were, Doby says that when he slid into bases in his first years at the major leagues, the white infielders would spit on him. He also, uh, the Indians, when they came north, would play exhibitions. And they played Texas, Louisiana, and come on north to begin uh, the regular season. And for instance, Texas had an apartheid law that black uh, athletes and white athletes could not uh, appear on the same field, no matter what the sport, football then. So several times, Doby was denied admission to stadiums where the Indian was playing. One time, he sh or several times, he showed up in uniform, and the ushers would not let him in. But then one day in Houston, he hit two home runs, two doubles, a single, and made a couple of spectacular catches. And according to Bill Veck, he was the favorite son of the city of Houston from that time on. Uh, another story was they would go to these uh, southern towns, and they had whites-only taxi cabs. And so Adobe was good friends. He, was a, he didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He was a, 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 not a quiet guy, but relatively quiet. Uh, but he was good friends with Jim Hegan and Al Rosen and uh, Bob Feller, not so much. Bob Feller, I don't know, might have been a little bit of a racist. Uh, Bob Lemon was a good friend. One of the interesting things I note is all of these black players, the, 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 they were most tolerated by people from California. Ted Williams from San Diego. The Boston Red Sox were the most racist team in baseball. When Tom Yockey, the owner of the Red Sox, was saying, why, do you, why don't you have blacks? He said, I have nothing against black. He said, I employ 200 of them on my plantation in South Carolina. <laughs> he actually said that. Um, so uh, when, when Doby went to play, Don DiMaggio, <coughs> who was from California, and Ted Williams came over to the Cleveland dugout and shook his hand and welcomed him the major leagues. Some of the commentary said Ted Williams was the most colorblind athlete of his time. But also uh, people like uh, uh, Duke Snyder from Compton, California, Bob Lemon from Long Beach. Uh, and they were just, uh, I don't know what it is, but they were, they were just, well, they don't play against these guys. They played against Jackie Robinson in exhibitions when they were in high school. And so they they were used to playing with blacks and going to school with African-American kids. So um, I just think Doby was a, a great guy. He, uh, Jackie Robinson, after his rookie season, after his sophomore season, making movies, Rubber Chicken Circuit, getting honorary all over the place, Doby came back and he was 
the high school, freshman high school basketball coach at East Patterson High School. And uh, Dobie had five kids. Uh, his son, Larry Doby, uh, played baseball at Duke, played in the minor leagues for several years, didn't make it in the, in the big leagues, and he is a roadie now for Billy Joel. Um, probably makes a lot of money. Anyway, uh, another interesting sidelight was that Doby and Yogi Berra were friends. You know, Doby would go to bat his first years. Uh, well, one story, somebody asked me about the Chapman incident that Jackie Robinson faced in Philadelphia. The Indians played the Athletics in Philadelphia, and, and the Athletics hired a fan to be a heckler, to heckle Dobie. So this fan was on Dobie for three or four game series, and then they traveled to New York to play the Yankees, and the same fan showed up and was heckling Dobie. But after two games, he came up to Dobie and he said, you know, you're a good sport, and he, Dobie never saw him again. But, uh, so uh, he came up his first times to bat against the Yankees, and he, he had expected all this uh, invective from catchers, and you know, they would call him all kinds of names and stuff. So he was expecting that with the Yankees. So first pitch, Yogi catches it, throws it back to Pittsburgh. He says, how are you kids? <laughs> Next pitch, he said, where's a good place in this town for dinner? You know, I haven't found a good restaurant here yet. And they became lifelong friends. And, and when Dobie made a little more money, he moved his family from Patterson, New Jersey to uh, Montclair. And he lived on the same street. And he and Yogi Berra were friends all their lives. At Montclair State, there's the Yogi Berra Museum. It has a Larry Dobie wing. And uh, so they lived, I don't know, a block, block and a half apart, and they were always friends. Um, so I, you know, is that enough? You want some more? <laughs> That's the perfect start to our questions from the, uh, from the clubhouse crowd. Who wants to lead it off? Yes, sir. You didn't mention what was Dilby's relationship like with Satchel when Satchel came up in 48. He and Robinson detested Satchel Page. They thought Satchel Page was a buffoon. They thought he was a step and fetch it character. They thought that he was he was tearing down all that they were trying to do to to uh, begin the integration of baseball. Uh, and and Doby and Robinson talked regularly on the phone. Um, they played barnstorm together for three or four seasons. Uh, Dobie was one of the pallbearers at Jackie Robinson's funeral. Um, they talked a lot, not about athletic exploits, but just loneliness. They were the only blacks on their team, and they talked about where the restaurants were that would serve blacks and serve good food. Uh, they talked about um, some of the hotels still discriminate, although Branch Rickey wouldn't stand for that. I mean, there's a story about uh, the Warwick Hotel in Philadelphia wouldn't let Robinson in, so Branch Rickey pulled the whole team and they went to the Benjamin Harrison Hotel, which became the Dodgers Road Hotel in Philadelphia. And, and Bill Beck w went through a divorce and he very soon had to sell the Indians and Hank Greenberg became the general manager. He never, he and his biography passes himself off as this great enlightened person. He didn't do anything until 1955. Under Vec, by the way, the Indians had uh, 14 African-American players under contract in 1949. The Dodgers had three, the Giants had three. And uh, Luke Easter was another one that uh, Al Lopez traded. You mentioned Dobie's uh, first year being so successful, but that's not really his first year. That no, was he was. His first full year. Yeah, his first full year. And he didn't do so well in 47 when he was up for a half a year, I guess. You no, because. Do you think that his was a failure, or maybe it was something hard to overcome later on? Well, Dobie was a shortstop. That's another thing I find interesting that all of these great center fielders were shortstops in the minors. Mickey Mantle was, uh, uh, yeah, was 
and mm -hmm. and that that's because they had to have great arms to be shortstop, both of them all, and so they it was a natural transition. The criticism I heard is that Vec drafted Dovey without a place for him to play, and so he he had a pretty set lineup, or Lou Boudreau did. Lou Boudreau was a, a player manager. They had a lot of player managers in those days, and. Uh, that was part of uh, Dobie's not doing so well in the August-September uh, time frame of 47. Then the Indians uh, hired Tris Speaker, who was a you know, Hall of Fame center fielder who led the 1920 Indians to the World Series championship. And he schooled Dobie on a transition from shortstop to the outfield. I'm just saying, did that bad start in that first half year color people's, excuse the expression, color people's, but, uh, put in people's minds that he was a failure to begin with and that he made it hard to overcome that even though he had such wonderful stuff? Yeah, I went, through the, I went through the Wendell Smith papers at the Hall of Fame and uh, he, uh, he, he began second guessing himself and saying, well, maybe they ought to send him down and give him a year in the minors. But that, Beck said, no, I'm not going to do that. And sure enough, he was right, because Dobie starred in the 49, in the 48 season. I know the famous story that Joe Cronin traded Pee Wee Reese because he didn't want Reese on the team as a shortstop with him being a shortstop with the Red Sox. Did Boudreaux sabotage Dobie's beginnings because he saw him as a threat? I don't know. I read Boudreaux's biography. And he, uh, he went to the University of Illinois, he was college educated, and he says he played sports against blacks and it was, it was uh, no big thing for him. But it, there's no evidence that he ever went out of his way to shepherd Dobie into the major leagues. So the evidence is in equipoise, I guess. Yes, sir? I was wondering if you ever had the chance to meet Larry Dobie at any point. I never met him. He died in 2000. 2003. He was inducted to the Hall of Fame 36 years after Jackie Robinson by the Veterans Committee, led by Ted Williams. Uh, Jackie Robinson was elected to the Hall of Fame. The first year he was eligible. Uh, it took Dobie a long time. And, uh, and, and Dobie finished his career as a, a, a kidding coach for the Expos. Then he was with the Indians, and he thought he was being groomed uh, to be the manager, and they hired Frank Robinson. So Dobie became the manager of the White Sox just for a half a season, um, but he finished second both times to a Robinson. He was the second African-American player, and he was the second African-American manager. His daughter eventually married a man with last name Robinson. He married what? One of his daughters <laughs> had married a man last name Robinson. Huh? <laughs> I was told by Professor Moore, whom I've talked to, he said, don't call Dobie's kids. They, they just not interested. They won't give you very much. So I never did. Uh, but then I've been in contact with some people at the Indians, and, and they said, oh, well, we have Larry Dobie Jr. out here a couple times. And, you should contact him, but it's too late now, I guess. <laughs> yes, sir. I, I think um, you know, there's one that wonderful generation of uh, what these some of these gentlemen did off the field. Obviously, Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, and Roberto Clemente. A little later, we saw them play stickball in the streets. We saw Roberto in Puerto Rico in the neighborhood where he uh, where he grew up and, and carried on his charities. We saw Jackie everywhere. We don't know a lot about what outside of this wonderful mention of yours of Larry coaching, Mr. Dobie coaching back in Patterson. In Cleveland, did he live in, in black Cleveland? Was he a part of you know what was a very vibrant, uh, blue collar, working class um, community? He community lived with the family. Cleveland. His family, his family stayed in New Jersey. <coughs> his wife, Helen, to whom he was married for 55 years, she became the first African-American telephone operator now, many of you don't remember what a telephone operator is. But, uh, and so he lived with a family in Cleveland. Uh, he often lamented that he 
he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, and if he went out with teammates, he was afraid that they'd be discriminated against, and so he, he just didn't want to go off and hang with them. He, he wanted to, but he, he thought it would cause embarrassing situations. Um, those were the times. Pardon, I can't hear you. It's widely known that, of course, that Jackie Robinson received death threats and was thrown at a lot. Was Larry Doby, you mentioned that people uh, didn't feel the spit on him um, before, but did he receive the same level, or not the same level, but anywhere near the same level of uh, kind of threats that Jackie Robinson I think he did. I think he received more. I think he was the victim of more discrimination. Any discrimination, bad enough. But I think Dobie suffered as much or more than Jackie Robinson did. Um, I think some of the, you know, Joe Morgan, when he spoke at Larry Dobie's funeral, said Dobie would never name the names of the people who mistreated him, the other ball players. Um, but he was mistreated left, right, and center, um, especially in the early years of his career. Yes, sir? Uh, I like your tie, by the way. Chris Speaker wrote a book about how to play the outfield, but I couldn't find it, you know. And one of my great aces in the hole uh, in writing this book is our interlibrary loan librarian, who was a former college pitcher, small college pitcher. So I'd say, Nathan, I need these three books about Al Lopez. And man, they'd be in my box the next day. It was great. But I never could find that Tris Speaker book. And uh, that's really the depth of my knowledge about that relationship. Financial reward. <clears throat> Rachel Robinson is one of the owners of the LA Dodgers now. Multi-million dollar franchise, second highest behind the Yankees. How about the Doby family? How about, I don't Doby think, family. Do they have I think the most Larry Doby ever made was uh, 27,000, maybe 30,000. Uh, I don't think he accumulated any personal wealth in what he did. He came back and he and Newcomb owned bars in Newark and they, that was a financial disaster. And then he went with Newcomb to play in Japan for a year. Um, he finished his days as the goodwill ambassador for the New Jersey Nets and then when he retired from that he and Monty Irvin uh, were hired by Bowie Kuhn to be special assistants to him on, on racial matters and other matters as well. Monty Irvin's interesting because, uh, well, first of all, a Vec could have had him too. If a, if a Manley called uh, Vec and said, I, I got another one I can give you. And Vec said, no, you know. And he, he kicked himself in the butt, you know, for not having done that. It's interesting, there's a black school, Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, which is one of four Commonwealth-assisted <coughs> universities, Temple, Penn State, Pitt, and Lincoln. And Monty Irvin was a graduate of Lincoln, and of course Lincoln also produced Thurgood Marshall, uh, late justice of the Supreme Court. But, yeah. yeah, I just had a question. You mentioned that Dolby was a manager very briefly. Do you get a sense that he was probably, was he frustrated that he didn't get other opportunities, that he wanted to manage more, or that he? He badly wanted a managing role, and he was really hurt when uh, Frank Robinson got the job. And then Frank Robinson, who ordinarily I would think of as a very politic person, he made some really nasty statements. Uh, uh, and I think that he was insecure in getting this job as Indians manager. And he said, well, Dobie was the local favorite. So Robinson put him down and said, oh, only the black players wanted him. He was divisive um, and made a number of comments. So he felt a little betrayed by Robinson? Pardon? He felt a little betrayed by Robinson by those groups? He never said that, but I get the sense that he was. Um, 
One of the things I found interesting was, you know, you hear all of this stuff about uh, Jackie Robinson and the discrimination he faced, but I read the sporting news for five years from 47 through 52. There's not a negative word in that paper. And that was the national baseball paper. And writers from all over the country contributed it. And, and, and there were like 85 bylined articles about Jackie Robinson. They were all supportive, you know. Jackie did this, go Jackie. Jackie did this, he stole home again. He's the great, you know. And so what we get, I suppose, teaches us a lot, you know, that discrimination is harmful and bad, but we don't get any of the good side, and there was a positive side. The other thing I found out is that in those years, uh, Robinson was mentioned, I think, 7.6 times for every time Dobie was featured in an article. So. I know you said it wasn't a baseball biography, but do you know how Dobie did when the Giants shocked the Indians in 54? He didn't have a good series. Nobody did. Al Rosen's, <laughs> Al Rosen's and his, uh, he, he doesn't have a biography, but um, Al Rosen said we simply ran out of gas. We wanted to beat the Yankees so bad. We played injured, we, and, and they set the record. They won all 111 games that year. Yankees won 102. And uh, that's where Casey Stengel's famous line comes from. You could look it up because uh, he was saying, how, how did the Yankees do that year? You could look it up. <laughs> they had a better uh, year than the five years that they had won in a row. But so, so, so Rosen says, there's no explanation other than we just ran out of gas. And it was really serendipitous. I mean, uh, I, one of their statements I read is Dusty Rhodes, who was the hero of the World Series, was an outfielder who did not have a very good friendship with his glove. <laughs> and, you know, he had like two pinch hit home runs and he was like five for seven. Um, uh, Willie Mays made him catch. Yeah, you <laughs> Well, Willie Mays suffered from that, I, I theorize, you know, because he was always in the shadow of the catch. And then he went to San Francisco and you think of San Francisco as an enlightened place, but the city of San Francisco was very racist. And so Willie Mays, for two reasons, he was uh, uh, discriminated against. One, because of the color of his skin, but two, he wasn't Joe DiMaggio. And so after six months, he moved back to, he bought a house in New Rochelle, and he lived in an apartment. And then he divorced that woman, um, and he met a, he met a, he met his wife in Pittsburgh. Satchel Page met his wife in Pittsburgh. He, he, he didn't even bother to divorce her when he got married. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, and then, so, so finally, in 61, I think, when the Giants beat the Dodgers in a playoff, and that's, that's 62? That's finally when Mays got some acceptance by the San Francisco media and the San Francisco fan base. But some of the statements you read from the San Francisco Chronicle of that era are terrible. I mean, they, they say he needs to be whipped more and stuff like that, you know. I mean, it was really raw stuff. Uh, I think uh, early in your talk you mentioned that Dobie uh, served in the military, is that right? And, yes. Um, many years ago I had a history professor who said that if it weren't for all the African-American men who served in the uh, U.S. military during World War II, there might not have been a uh, civil rights movement, that uh, so many of these folks came back and they based on fascism, they had a, uh, maybe a certain kind of courage and confidence and uh, sense that they, that they were entitled to get their share of the American dream and so forth. And uh, do you think that was a factor for Adobe, for any of these guys who may have come back? Uh, Major League Baseball was not in tune with the rest of what was happening in this country at that time. The, the Major League owners they voted 15 to 1 against integrating baseball in late 1946. 
they were a bunch of fat-ass, pinstripe-wearing poobahs who did what Warren Buffett called elephant bumping. They just would go to meetings and try and impress each other about how important they were and what a pers terrible person Bill Beck was. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the literature talks about Satchel Paige, and it's totally uh, off base, and I I'm probably stepping on some toes here, but. Some people say he was the greatest pitcher of all times. Well, his best record, he kept, a lot of the records were his own, and he was a tremendous promoter. <laughs> but he pitched 17 years in the Negro Leagues. His record was 103 and 64. Good record, but if you average it out, it's only like six and four per year. And he had several seasons we had losing records. Now, how could he be the greatest pitcher when you match him up against Bob Gibson or Sandy Koufax? or Nolan Ryan. It couldn't be, but there, I, I read three or four biographies of Satchel Paige who said he was the greatest pitcher of any you for all time. He wasn't, he just had a, he was a character. He had tremendous longevity, but, and then they say he should have been the first African-American. He could not have been. The first African-Americans in baseball had to be veterans, because at that time, World War II was such a cataclysmic event, and 550,000 Americans died. Some people say 60 million people died world, worldwide. And Satchel Paige not only wasn't a veteran, I think he might have been a draft dodger. He was on the cusp of being too old. But I had an uncle, same age, who served in the Marine Corps. Went in the Marine Corps at age 34 and fought in the Pacific. And, and then, Satchel Paige was the highest paid person in baseball. He was pitching exhibitions. He was making, you know, 50, 60,000 bucks a year when everybody else was, you know, off fighting the war. And then these biographers say, well, he couldn't have served because he had flat feet. There's no evidence of that. <laughs> and they said, oh, he was a great patriot. He, he participated in the war bonds movement. I don't know. I mean, I'm a veteran. I fought in Vietnam, so that's why I have my hearing aid. So, so two things. What's well, my Irish genes? Too. One of the things that was working against him, obviously, he's not playing in a media market, he's playing in Cleveland. I mean, it's Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays get plenty of press coverage. And another thing is personality. He doesn't seem to be a dynamic you know, get into verbal disagreements with people, uh, with other people, like Jackie Robinson would. And he doesn't have Willie Mays' dynamism. He's just not, you know, as a, as a field presence, he may be a very good player. But well, there's something about him that's just, you know. Well, I agree, but I, I'm not saying that he should op occupy center stage. I'm just saying he shouldn't be forgotten the way he was. But just one thing, he's not forgotten. He's in the Hall of Fame. Sid Allen's not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, but I mean, if I ask people, and I've asked a lot of people, and they say, I never heard of that guy. Who is that guy? <laughs> Students, I, I, I asked a 50-year-old faculty member, maybe in Cleveland, Ohio, but not much. He's not, not remembered. I don't I, I bet outside, you're right, outside of Michael Grantley, nobody else on the Indians even knows much about him. Yeah. So, right now. And he had a temper. I mean, there were a couple of instances where he took a baseball bat and started to go out to Hector in the crowd, and uh, uh, coaches pulled him back and said, don't do that, kid. And uh, he was very conscious of the role he was playing, as was Jackie Robinson. And so they, uh, Dobie thought that he had to play with dignity and that he, you know, his legacy would be passed on to his children. And uh, he, he voiced that at times. Uh, but he wasn't completely quiescent. And, and Don Newcomb already said of Jackie Robinson, he's like a boiler, he blows off every periodically, you know, and uh, so. Yes, sir. The American League in the 50s was notoriously slower to integrate than the National League. Did that affect Dobie as his career wore on that in any way? Yes. The first 15 black All-Stars, 14 were in the National League. One was in the American League, Larry Dobie. Um, the 1949 All-Star game, 
Um, four black all-stars, Doby from the Air, American, but Campanella, uh, Newcomb, and Robinson. Um, Bill Beck, in one of his books, The Hustler's Handbook, talked, integration really didn't come up to the ambient level of blacks in our society until about 1963. Uh, our population's about 13% black, and major leagues uh, lag behind that, but the, but the one statistic I had is in 1954, uh, only one team in the American League, Cleveland, had blacks on its roster, and of course, 1949, it had 14 blacks under contract under Beck. Giants uh, had three under Horace Stone, and under Ricky, the Dodgers had three. Um, so in 1961, 62, uh, I think 13 of the hitters who hit over 300, uh, there were 13 hitters, 11 of them were black, and they were all from the National League. So, yes, the American League was terrible. <coughs> One of the worst teams were the Yankees. I mean, no, you're a Mets fan. <laughs> yeah. So, Casey Stingle was a racist. He, 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 Elston Howard, he called, he called him my N-I-G-G-E-R, and he said, he said, well, you know, and, and people are supposed to be fast. How did I get a slow one? And then when he went to the Mets, he openly called his African-American players jungle bunnies to their face. And Al Lopez was his best friend. They invested in a lot of stuff together. Uh, Casey Stengel was actually a pretty astute investor. He got involved in oil and gas deals in Texas, and he uh, got Lopez to invest with him. I was wondering if you could speak about the Dobie Gromek photograph in the 1938 World Series. Now what, now say that? The Dobie Gromek photograph, it's supposedly the first uh, ever photograph of a black man and a white man in the race. Well, yes. Uh, I've been told that Gromek paid a price because he was from Hamtramck, which is almost 100% Polish. It's actually now all Muslim. But, uh, uh, pardon? In Detroit, yeah. Yeah, suburb of Detroit. And, but I have pictures in my book of, of Dobie with Ernie Wynn, uh, uh, of Dobie with Al Rosen. Al Rosen was a Southerner. He was from Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, Ernie Wynn was from Alabama. And uh, I love Ernie. Ernie Wynn apparently was very mean. You know, he, he, he won, I don't know, 310 games. But uh, Mickey Mantle tells a story about uh, he was on first, and and Wynn uh, was pitching, and Wynn was so mad that Mantle got a hit that he threw to first base at Mantle. He wasn't trying to pick him <laughs> off, he was trying to hit him. Uh, I saw a picture once of uh, early Wynn's wrists. He was a left-hander. His left wrist was twice as big as his right wrist from snapping off curveballs. Uh, kind of cool. You mentioned that Rosen was a Southerner, but do you think his and Dobie's relationship had to deal with they were both minorities in a game that really didn't accept either one of them? Well, they were in a whites-only taxi cab, and, uh, and uh, uh, Rosen, Dobie, and somebody else, and the taxi driver said, uh, the black guy will have to get out. And Rosen said, stop the cab, get out, I'm going to smash your teeth in. <laughs> and he was a Jew raised in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Then he moved to Miami, I think, in middle school. But uh, yeah, he was, he says that. He, he, he felt a uh, kindred spirit because he was from a minority in our society that was often discriminated against. How was he treated in, at, the, at his home park in Cleveland? He always says he was treated well. That um, he, in part, he explains that because the Browns had integrated right after the war, and uh, so Cleveland fans were used to seeing African American professional athletes more so than in other cities. And then he was very close to Beck all his life. He said Beck was like a father to him, and uh, 
after he retired and Vec had a farm on Maryland Eastern Shore, Eastern Shore, Dobie would take his family down there for a week and stay with the Vecs. And I pay, he was a pretty intelligent guy because Vec read four to five books a week. And um, Dobie, and, uh, after he had broken in, you know, after his you know, junior season or senior season, he would go into Vec's office and they'd talk together for hours. Beck was kind of different because he never had an office door. He took the door off his office whenever he owned a major league team. He always sat in the bleachers. He said, it's against my policies to sit in a box in my own park. Of course, Branch Rookie, exactly the opposite. He sat in the box with the suit and the bow tie on and everything. I wear bow ties once in a while. But, um, Eric, this is uh, uh, because of the time constraint. Eric's going to have the last question. Go. Quick comment and question. So you mentioned that Dobie worked for the Nets at the end of his uh, professional career. So my father was in banking in New Jersey, and a huge baseball fan, so he got to know Dobie doing marketing relations and talked a lot about baseball. And obviously, he talked about what a wonderful, decent, humble man he was. But he talked about the, the Wirtz hit and Mace's catch in 54, and Dobie was on second. And he always said, well, Dobie talked about wasn't the catch, you know, but the throw, and how the throw never got enough credit. Yeah. For that play, but I'll like pull my chair that, that anecdote. But my question is going to the point of the American League being more notoriously slow. Do you think it was the American League owners or the American League cities that resulted in the American League being slower to integrate? I agree with the owners. I think that they were uh, an anachronistic group that were still mired in maybe the 18th century. Um, they were a bunch of jerks. <laughs> Bill Beck was the last, th this is a sobering fact, he was the last man to own a major league team who wasn't personally wealthy. He owned four teams, the Indians, the St. Louis uh, Browns, and the White Sox twice. And early on he owned the Milwaukee Brewers, which was not today's Milwaukee Brewers, uh, which was a triple A team. And, uh, he was a breath of fresh air, you know. He would paint the outfield fence if that needed to be done. He'd help out in the concession stand. He had all of these wild promotions. They'd auction off livestock, and you know, the, fam the famous one was, is, is Disco de Demolition, where they, you know, they, did he have nickel beer? Uh, yeah, several people were almost decapitated at White Sox Park. Uh, the uh, because of the time constraint, we're going to have to end the podcast there. Uh, so thank you. Of course, come up and ask Doug your own questions. But again, the book, Greatness in the Shadows, Larry Doby and the Integration of the American League by the University of Nebraska Press, written by Douglas Branson. Thank you very much. Thank you.